0: Think everybody's got a friend that's deconstructed or isn't is deconstructing right now. Is there a brief description or a brief, I guess, definition as to what that is?
1: People are using that word in a lot of different ways, like a spectrum all the way to somebody saying that Christians and Christianity is itself a toxic system. What I don't want any of our viewers or listeners to think if they're like well I'm in deconstruction but they just mean they're trying to make their beliefs more biblical that's a good thing to be doing what you're going to find predominantly are people who believe that Christianity is toxic things like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus the fact that human beings are sinners the existence of hell that God will judge these kinds of things are in the mind of the deconstruction community these are toxic beliefs that the church invented to control people with fear
0: hey everyone welcome back to the podcast i'm really excited about today's interview with alisa childers and i wanted to tell you a little bit about her before we jump into it i also wanted to thank you for being a part of the Now That We're a Family community. Whether you've left a rating or a review on iTunes or you're a subscriber on YouTube, or you've been a part of Katie's Get It All Done Club or the Growth Initiative, or you've you know been a student in the Votberg Music Academy, we are so grateful for your ongoing support in those things. We get to do what we love to do and we're so encouraged by the different people we get to talk to because of Now That We're a Family. And so we're grateful that you enable us to be a part of this. So I wanted to say thank you before I talked about Elisa Childers. Now I'm going to talk about Elisa Childers. Who is Elisa Childers? Well, she is an American singer and songwriter, and she's also an apologist. She's she's known, she's actually becoming best known right now as an apologist, but prior to being an apologist, she was known for being uh, a singer in the all-female band, Christian band, Zoe Girl. But as of late, the last few years, she's really stepped into the apologist space, being a Christian apologist, and she's written a couple books that have been extremely impactful in my life and my family's life, and, and I know, you know, thousands of other people as well. The first one she wrote was called Another Gospel. And she talks about her challenge with, you know, being around the deconstruction movement that's going on over the last few years and her really doubting her faith and wondering what the actual non-negotiables of the Christian faith were and if they're trustworthy. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is, is Christianity true, essentially? So she wrote a book about that, which is powerful. And then she, her most recent book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies. It's kind of going through and, and really, I feel like, kind of killing some sacred cows within pop and Christian culture, or maybe pop Christian culture, things that not true that we say as Christians and how that really affects our life. So once again, another powerful book, and Elisa Childers has a great podcast called the Elisa Childers Podcast. She's also, you know, got a YouTube channel. She's active on Instagram, and we'll link all of those below because she is a great resource, a great person to follow. If you just want to hear ongoing Bible teaching, if you're interested in the historicity of the Bible and the doctrines of the Christian faith, and she interviews a ton of experts. She herself is an expert, and she's able to network with many experts and different aspects of the Christian faith. So highly recommend you following her on any of her platforms. Like I said, we'll link those below. Um, but with that said, please enjoy this interview with Alisa Childers.
1: But now that we're a family, All right,
0: Elisa Childers, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and share some of your story and some of your insights. I already gave a brief introduction as to who you are and kind of what you've done, a quick, you know, bio, but could you, in your own words, maybe tell me and tell our listeners, you know, who the heck you are? Like when you bump into an old friend and they're like, what are you doing? You know, what, what does your life look like right now? And and who are you?
1: Yeah, who am I? What am I doing? And what even is my life? These are like the existential questions, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, That's a great question. So growing up, I always thought music was going to be my main thing that I was going to do. I was always involved in songwriting. My dad was a Christian artist, so I just like, that was what I was going to do. I've always been more on the flaky artist side of things, but over the past 10 years or so, my life has taken a bit of a turn. Uh, I think it's a divine turn. It's a God-ordained turn, but I, I, and we can dive more into this story if you want to, but my faith really was in crisis about 10 years ago, where everything I'd really believed was just... Uh, picked apart, explained away, and I didn't really know what to believe. So I was really forced to start looking at my faith for the first time in a really more intellectual way to know, I know what I believe, but is what I believe actually true? And how could I know that? And so that was a journey that I went on about, you know, a little over 10 years ago. And uh, several years ago, the Lord called me to public ministry in that realm. So I just basically, I have a blog. I I don't blog that much anymore because I write books now, but um, I have a podcast and a YouTube channel. And so I do a lot of content for people who, um, it really interacts with the stream where my faith was challenged, which was progressive Christianity. So I'm trying to offer a biblical perspective on that movement but really just giving reasons why Christianity is true and helping people with their doubts.
0: Wow, that's so cool. And I know that I can speak from firsthand experience. Your ministry has been a tremendous blessing to me, to my wife, to I've got a bunch of siblings. My younger brother said he's bought like 12 of your books and he's given them to all of his friends. And so so I'm really grateful for you making the intention to having that intentional Uh, Ministry, could we back up? Then you mentioned, you know, that you grew up in a musical family, um, and and then maybe take us through the journey. You said you were a flaky artist, you know, and I like like that term and how you kind of contrast that to becoming more intellectual. So what what was that? Were there defining moments, or was it this gradual thing? Because I think most Christians can relate to having at least some experience of that existential crisis as to what do I believe? How, you know, what, what is my foundation, so to speak? And so was that a gradual crisis for you? Or was there like an instance where all of a sudden you felt like your faith was totally shaken?
1: That's That's a great question. It was not gradual. It was really just like I was thrown into this ocean of doubt. And so the, the situation in within which that happened was it really wasn't until I had, I had spent about, the better part of a decade touring as a part of the CCM group Zoe Girl. And your listeners might be too young to remember us, but you probably know Toby Mack and the newsboys. We toured with all those people kind of in that vein. And so when that came to a close, uh we were all pre- married and having babies by this point. And so I was like in my early 30s at this point, And I had never, I look back and I go, how is this even possible? But I had never really doubted what I believed. I was such a devout believer my whole life. I loved Jesus. I I was completely convinced that the Bible was his word and nobody could talk me out of it. I just I never even questioned it. And so what happened was my husband and I, when we came off the road and I wasn't touring so much, we started going to a church here in Middle Tennessee, Nashville area where we still live. And we loved the church so much. They just had such a great sense of community. I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel like people were putting me on a pedestal. It just felt very real, very authentic. And they did that really well. And the pastor, when he would preach, his sermons were so uh, like intellectual. And my husband and I really hadn't encountered a whole lot of that. So we were really intrigued. We really loved this church. And so after we were going there for about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group. And he said, this is going to be like going through seminary. If you kind of, you know, if you go to this class for four years, you'll come out on the other side with a seminary level education. And because I hadn't really engaged The intellectual side. And what I mean by the intellectual side is I knew the Bible. I loved and read and studied the Bible my whole life. I just didn't know a lot about church history. I didn't know a lot about the arguments for God's existence or the reliability of the Bible, things like that. And so I thought I was going to learn that stuff. But when I got into the class, the pastor admitted to us that he was actually a, what he called a hopeful agnostic. In other words, he wasn't sure what he even believed about the questions about God and Christianity and the Bible. Wow, wow. And so the class was really more like he was deconstructing Christianity. He was picking it apart, explaining it away, and ultimately casting a lot of doubt, um, not just on like what we would say were secondary issues or third tier issues, but core, like what is Christianity kind of issues. And so I would try to debate with him when I was in the class. I remember I would go home and I would Google stuff and I would try to come back and I didn't do a very good job, but I tried to refute him. But there came a point in time when we had to leave. I had to leave the class and we had to leave the church for these reasons. And it was then that I I had nobody to debate or refute. And so I was just left with all of the things that I had learned and been told and been taught. And it really sent my faith into a spiral. And, And it really was just this kind of night and day thing, just really quickly. It was like, I felt, and I talk about this in my book, Another Gospel, I felt like I had been plunged into a stormy ocean of doubt, just with absolutely nothing to hang on to. And all these waves of doubt were crashing over my head. And one night I cried out to God and I said, God, if you're real, if you're really out there, if if everything I've believed about you is true, well, you, I, I need, you got to show up. But I needed him to show up with answers, not with a, an experience because I'd had so many wonderful experiences of his presence. And the pastor had even gotten in my head about those, saying that's just, you know, the synapses in your brain. You just like Christianity so you feel good when you worship. And you know, it was just a real um, really messed with my head. So, um I was driving in my car one day, and I heard this man on the radio, and he was answering, the questions of really skeptical college students on a secular campus. Mm-hmm. And it was all the questions that had been coming up in this class. And so I heard him answering, and it was through that, that I connect, got connected to other ministries that were answering questions like this. And it was years. I mean, it wasn't an overnight thing. It really, really took several years to really restabilize my faith and and give me the answers I was looking for, Which and it created a whole bunch of new questions. But when I came out on the other side of it, not that all my questions are answered. I don't mean to say like I sewed the th- whole thing up and it's neat and tidy now. But I mean, the, the deepest, most existential, you know, angst that I had was settled. And I really came out on the other side of it more convinced than ever that the Bible is God's word and it's reliable. It can be trusted. Jesus was who he said he was. The historical claims of Christianity are true. And uh, so it, it sort of added that element of the, the knowledge that I was lacking to help stabilize my faith.
0: Hey everyone, I wanna take a quick moment to tell you about our online music academy called VoteburgMusicAcademy.com. Katie and I actually started this online music academy seven years ago, and over that time, we've been able to see thousands of students go through our courses and learn how to play the guitar, the mandolin, the fiddle, the piano, the ukulele, and bring music into their home. And we really curated these lessons so that you're able to learn with your child or you're able to learn by yourself and then bring music into your home and play with your kiddos we even have it so that you can you know subscribe to one course and have three of your kids take the same course so it's really cost effective and you're able to go at your own pace and bring music into your home go to voper music and check this out okay listen up this is where it gets really good if you enter the coupon code youtube at checkout you will get 10 percent off each month's payment it's a subscription it's a reoccurring payment so if you put that code in then it's 10 percent off each month so i mean that can really add up over time So bring some music into your family's home go over to votebrickmusicacademy.com i'll link up below and you guys put in that coupon code and go learn how to play some piano guitar fiddle mandolin ukulele your choice wow that's an amazing story and thanks for sharing that you know there's a few things that i i kind of like want to refer back to you mentioned you know, deconstructionism, you mentioned, I think, um, intellectualism, then you kind of, as I already said, contrast that to maybe a more of an emotional experience that Christians can relate to as well. And I, I don't know if there's a way that you can kind of help me and help our listeners explain the the helpfulness or maybe even the necessity of taking this more intellectual approach to the scriptures and taking it to our faith, because, um, I can, I can just speak from personal experience growing up in an amazing Christian family a lot of times. And you even use the term, you know, my, my doctrine or my theology is not like all neat and tidy now. And in a lot of ways, I think that, uh, that was almost kind of frowned upon growing up, you know, saying, Hey, you know, knowledge puffeth up, you know, we've heard that knowledge puffeth up, or don't try to put a nice little bow on each one of your doctrines, you know, like you need to follow, you need to follow the leading of the spirit. Just the Bible is enough. Just be true to the word. And I'm not hearing you say that, you know, the Bible's not enough. I'm hearing you saying that you've found various ways to validate the Bible, but could you kind of help us wrap that all together? I don't know if I thought that was a very clear question because I think that that's some place that I'm coming from. And there's a lot of listeners that might be in the same boat where they would say, you know, I just believe the Bible, you know, or the Bible's enough, or, you know, they might be called a biblicist. And this, this thought of like church history seems extra biblical or of pursuing outside resources seems, seems extra biblical. So could you speak to the the, uh, help of that?
1: Yeah, that actually is a really good and important question. Because growing up, I didn't really have any tools to understand how to read the Bible, and what I'm even looking for. And I'm so thankful to the Lord, because he shepherded that whole process with me, even though I misinterpreted some verses growing up, for sure. Like He still I mean, his word did not return void, right? Mm -hmm. So um, but you know, I I do understand, I sympathize with that point of view, just saying, you know, all I need is the Bible, I don't need any philosophy, I don't need any, church history. And um, I would maybe gently push back on that and say, you know, think about, just think about grammar. To even be able to read the Bible, first, you have to know how to read, right? I mean, somebody could read it to you, but you do have to understand certain philosophical principles, like what is a figure of speech, right? We take a verse like Jesus saying that he's a vine or that he's a door or that he's a shepherd, Right? Everybody kind of instinctively knows that he's not actually made of wood. He doesn't, he's not set on a wall with hinges, right? Everybody kind of knows that. I don't think anybody would push back on that. Um, but that is just evidence right there that the Bible does employ some figures of speech and it requires us to know a few things about grammar. We need to think about the genre of each book, right? There are books that our historical narrative, where the Bible records people doing very wicked and evil things. And so we have to make sure we understand that not everything we read in the Bible is something God approves of. Take, for example, the serpent deceiving Eve in the garden. Um, Obviously, you don't want to just read, did God really say and say, oh, I'm supposed to question what God says, because it's in the Bible, right? So, so I think that I'm I'm giving you more obvious examples because there are more difficult ones that require us to think a little bit harder about it. So I think it's very important for Christians to understand just some basic, what we call hermeneutics, fancy word to just explain the art and science of interpreting the Bible correctly, which means understanding what was actually being communicated to the original audience before we even think about how it applies to our own life. But if we say, I only need the Bible, well, then we're sort of trusting ourselves to interpret it properly without having the tools necessary to do so, for example, considering who wrote it, who they wrote it to, how did that original audience interpret this, and that's all before we even think about how it might apply to our lives or what it might reveal about the nature and character of God. So, I, I I'm I love the I love the 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 childlike innocence. I had that my whole life of saying, I just need the Bible. But I, I would maybe challenge our enemies to think a little bit about just the tools that we all kind of instinctively know we need, like basic grammar rules, and even the basic principles of philosophy, the law of non-contradiction, right? When we see in two gospels that, like there's one angel in one gospel, but the other gospel reports two angels at the resurrection, what do we do with that? Well, one of the first principles of logic is the law of non-contradiction, which says two, um, two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. So we know that if God does not contradict himself, We need to think about what that's talking about. And so when you really read through it, it actually doesn't contradict one another because in one gospel, it doesn't say that there's only one angel, just reports one. The other gospel reports two. So how many were there? Well, at least two, (laughs) you know, that's what was reported, but it doesn't mean there was only one. So there's just kind of these um, critical thinking skills that I think can really help us a lot to understand what God actually wants us to understand. And as far as I'd I'd love to comment too on just the kind of the neat and tidy bow thing, because one thing we hear in our culture so much is don't put God in a box, yes, yes. right? Don't, um, you know, you're trying to hem him in. And so when I say my theology is not neat and tidy, what I mean is there are things the Bible is a little bit less clear on. This is why we have so many denominational differences regarding how we baptize and predestination and free will. My goodness, if anybody figures that one out, you know, I'm still not, I still haven't figured that one out. Um, But there are things that are very clear. And so in our culture today, there's almost this pressure to not land. There's almost this pressure to say, well, I'm not going to go ahead and close the box on that topic because that would be closed minded. That would be overly simplified. So what I would encourage all of us to do is where the Bible is clear, where we can settle, let's settle, right? Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said um, the, the purpose of an open mind is to close it again on something." Solid. So we do want to keep an open mind. But if there is something that's very clearly taught, like Jesus rose from the dead, let's go ahead and close our mind on that. Like we've decided that's true. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we can go ahead and stand on that. And we don't have to leave that in the realm of messiness or mystery. But there certainly are areas where... It's gonna. You're going to have to leave a little bit of mystery, Um, and and you may not settle all of your positions. And I would urge everyone to take your time on that. Make sure that what you believe lines up with Scripture, and don't rush into those things.
0: Wow, that's such a great explanation. Thanks for sharing all of that. Uh, And and like you said, I it, it is such a popular thing to say. Well, everything's got nuance, you know. Like what what that might mean to you might not. It might not mean it for me. And I go back even to again, a great childhood. I was around a great Christian community, but I think every single Bible study I was a part of from age 12 through my young adult years, the Bible study leader who was you know, usually a man of great intentions, we'd read a passage and then the question would, would always be, well, what does that verse mean to you? You know, like that's just the question that was asked. And I didn't realize the implications of approaching scripture like that and how that, you know, you've talked about the postmodern uh, influence we've had. And that question really does promote so much individualistic interpretation of saying, okay, what's my object lesson from from the passage? And so could you maybe actually just, before we move on, from this are there tools because this this can be overwhelming like a lot of times it's easier to just go take a subjective object lesson from the Bible and kind of take it as a moral teaching and say, oh boy, well, I don't really know what this means, but I do know that, you know, it helps me, you know, be a better husband. So I'll take that object lesson and everybody can agree it's it's good to be a better husband. So we'll agree on that, even if it's not the meaning of the verse, because I think that happens a lot in passages. People will say this is what it means and what they're saying is a good thing. So you're like, well, I'm not going to disagree with that. Because it's like they're promoting a good moral or a good ethic. So are there some tools that you went to or that you would suggest young parents? Because I know as a parent, I want to equip my children. I want to teach them the word and and see them walk in confidence in what the word means. Um, How did you start that journey? Because it's overwhelming.
1: Yeah, it is overwhelming. So I, I would just let me give one resource recommendation. And then I'm going to give just one little tip or tool that I actually taught my kids this morning when we were doing our devotions this morning. Nice. And I and I repeat it. So I think that's important with our kids, like especially if you have young kids, we have to repeat. And so what we do when we study the Bible is we we use a three pronged approach. So we observe, we interpret and then we apply. And I think what a lot of people do, and I did my whole life, so I am guilty as charged, I would skip the interpretation part. I would read it, and then I would immediately apply it to my life. So take the story of David and Goliath. I saw myself as David with the stones, and I'm, you know, like, as as it would relate to some spiritual battle in my life. And I didn't really care about what was actually happening in history. I knew it really happened. But it, that wasn't really important to me, as that might lead up to the Messiah or, you know, what that would like, who am I really in that story? I'm probably the scared Israelites that needed a savior to come sure. in. And, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. Yep, yep. Um, so it's important, like three steps. First, read what's being written. And and in that step, you might want to ask questions like who wrote it? Who did they write it to? Um, you know, what was going on in that culture and that historical context? And then you then you interpret like, how, what did this mean to them? What, how did they interpret these words? And then we can figure out how that applies to us. Mm-hmm. And And um, like, for example, this week, I had a really big challenge that I felt ill equipped to to do it just I felt like, Lord, this is overwhelming. I'm not equipped. And to do this are so many more people qualified, more qualified than me to do this task that you've called me to. And I I was thinking about David and the stones, you know, and I and I thought, Lord, I know that I'm not David in this story. But what that story does reveal is something about the way you work Mm -hmm. and you do. And there's another verse that says he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And that principle that I pulled out is like, Lord, I know that you are a God who this reveals your nature and character. And you work this way a lot in scripture. Would you do that in my life? Today, so it doesn't mean that that you know we're snatching all these um, amazing inspiration, inspirational passages from people's hands, but it's yeah. just adding that extra step to understand how does this actually apply to my life. This morning, we were we read uh, from Ephesians when it says, "Slaves, obey your masters." That's a tough verse to interpret and apply today. And so we did our three steps. Okay, first of all, what is being communicated? How did they interpret? So I explained what slavery looked like in the first century Roman Empire context, how, you know, 80 to 90 percent of people were slaves. And then you ask questions like what would have happened if Paul said everybody set your slaves free? Well, probably probably a lot of people would have died if yeah. he did it that way. So we're, then we introduced case law. And this is, so how does this apply today? Well, that's a tough one. Is it directly apply? Do we have slaves here today? So how does this apply to our lives? And so we talked about how God's trajectory toward freedom, uh, which is what led to abolition and just had a really rich discussion about how this might apply to us today. And um, so I would just encourage our our listeners to do those three things, observe, interpret, apply. Now, the resource I would recommend is a book called how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And that is just a great primer on learning some of these tools that you can apply really easily.
0: Wow. Thank you for that. That's extremely helpful. Could we go back and could you, cause we've heard this term the last, you know, maybe five or 10 years, the, And you talked about that being something that you experienced firsthand. And I think everybody's got a friend that's deconstructed or isn't is deconstructing right now. Can you kind of tell us, is there a brief description or a brief, I guess, definition as to what that is and how we could maybe how we could maybe interact with somebody that's going that's doing that right now?
1: Yeah, okay. So this is a whole can of worms we're about to open right now. Let's do it. Yeah. The deconstruction, which is good. I love to talk about it. Yeah. I actually just turned in a manuscript for a new book on deconstruction okay. that we're really hoping will come out in the fall. Cool. So um, this is this is where my heart is right now okay. and my, where my head has been for the last year. <laughs> So when we talk about the word deconstruction, the first thing I think we need to realize is that people are using that word in a lot of different ways. Some people might just mean they're rethinking some of the secondary theological positions they were taught growing up. Maybe they're thinking, you know, I was always taught that premillennial eschatology is the only bit, and I'm I'm thinking maybe it's millennialism. I don't know. And so they're saying, so I'm deconstructing my eschatology. So some people mean that. Other people mean that they're maybe changing denominations. Maybe the whole sort of stream they grew up in. They're realizing, hey, I, I was I was raised charismatic. I'm changing a lot of my theology according to scripture, and now I'm going to be Anglican or whatever. Yes, yeah. And then it, it's the way to somebody saying that Christians and Christianity is itself a toxic system. Mm. So in the book, we we explain that. And so what I don't want any of our viewers or listeners to think, if they're like, well, I'm in deconstruction, but they just mean they're trying to make their beliefs more biblical or or they're engaging their doubts, or they're asking hard questions, unequivocally, I'll say that's a good thing to be doing. We should be, you know, the Bible says, test all things, hold fast to what is true. Do not believe every spirit for many false prophets have gone into the world. So if you're on a journey of reforming your beliefs to scripture, and you're calling that deconstruction, I would just say, you know, because of the way deconstruction manifests online and its philosophical roots, I would encourage you to use a different word, Hmm. maybe Hmm. reformation, maybe Biblical discernment, sanctification, um, just being a Christian, because yeah. we're called yeah. to do those things, Growth, um, yeah. I just don't want anybody to hear me give this definition of deconstruction and say, well, that's not what I'm doing. So when we researched it, though, what we found is if you search the deconstruction hashtag on any social media, uh, you know, stream, predominantly are people who believe that Christianity is toxic. These are people who might even still call themselves Christians in a more progressive kind of sense or maybe a more broad sense of spirituality. Some might be atheists, some might be agnostics, but what they all kind of tend to agree upon is that the starting point of... Christian beliefs, things like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the fact that human beings are sinners, the existence of hell, that God will judge, these kinds of things are in the mind of the deconstruction community. These are toxic beliefs that the church invented to control people with fear. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. and so. Theological beliefs in the deconstruction hashtag are not assessed based on what's the most biblical. In fact, in that in that space, if you were to go into that space and say, I'm deconstructing, but I think the Bible's my authoritative source for truth, and I'm going to deconstruct according to the Bible, they will say, You are not in deconstruction. Yeah. You have to go back to yeah, the drawing get board lost. That's yeah. what it's yeah. about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not about if you can't affirm biblical authority in that, in that stream. So it's really more about. More, what you think is morally good or bad, or or helpful or harmful, toxic or oppressive? You mm-hmm. know, this is the kind of language you hear a lot. So that 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 may be a good start, and I'm happy to to go in any direction you want to go on that. But it's just this it's this word that everybody's using differently, but the way it's predominantly manifesting in culture is a, is very much leaving historic Christian beliefs. Yeah,
0: that's a great, thank you so much just for explaining it like that because that's really enlightening to me. When you consider that and then you consider, you've already mentioned, you know, devotions with your children and I think of my kiddos, do you think that there are specific uh, moral, ethical, issues that are kind of prompting this deconstruction. Because I mean, from my perspective, and this might be just like a simple way to approach it, but it seems like people that deconstruct usually starts by having a disagreement on what the Bible says about sex or their sexual desire. Like that's a, maybe that's not everybody, but it seems like that's a common thing. And I see that being something that my children are going to grow, grow up with. And I don't know if there are various like cultural triggers that cause this, that you're trying to equip your children with. But as like from a parent's perspective, how do you feel like you're equipping or can we equip our children to engage with these types of questions and these types of attacks on our faith?
1: Mm, That's such a great question. And this is something I'm thinking through all the time. I can't stress enough how important it is as early as you can to start the sex conversation with your kids. Now, what I mean is, of course, age appropriate, but there's an age appropriate conversation to be had at every stage. Hmm. Hmm. I even think about the radical gender theory that is coming for our kids. My kids are 14 and 11, so they're right in the thick of it to where in their age group. I mean, it used to be we'd say, hi, nice to meet you. How are you? And now it's, hi, what are your pronouns? Yes, yes. So this is their world that they're living in. So I think it's really important, especially with the the rapid onset gender dysphoria that we see kind of predominantly affecting our girls. And I want to say, of course, if someone has... Uh, gender dysphoria. We have compassion and we want to minister to that person and help them uh, and help them. But there's this contagious aspect that's affecting girls so much. And so, even at a very young age, showing pictures saying, woman, man, yeah, mommy, yeah. daddy. Yeah. I mean, you, I can't tell you how just solidifying those categories in the minds of our children, um, how much help that can be using the, the correct words for our body parts so that that's not an off, you know, like a cringy or weird topic to talk about with mom and dad. And then, um, you know, my daughter, when she was eight, I introduced the topic of homosexuality to her hmm. because I wanted to be the first exposure she had to it. Yes. yes. Now, some of you guys in your generation I'm a little older than you you guys might have to go a, leave a little earlier right, even right. especially with how the media is is aiming things that your kids start those conversations earlier um, but studies have shown that the first person to introduce a topic to the kid kind of gets viewed as the expert yes, in the right. eyes of the kid mm-hmm. and if our kids know like we can talk openly about these things mom's not going to freak out um, I, I have found like I'm that's one of the best things I did I think and you know our kids are gonna they're gonna make their choices sure, sure. but old ultimately, knowing that that conversation is open. um, And we talk about it all like, um, recently, I did a podcast on the American girl book that is sort of promoting all this radical gender theory. I read it with my daughter. Hmm. I had her look through it well, well. because, and and she's 14. So we had had enough conversations. That I felt she could handle it, but exposing them to what's out there and, and and modeling for them how to discern through it with compassion, but not sacrificing truth um, is, is the, is the best. I mean, it's the most important thing I think we can do as parents with, because that's what's coming for our kids more than anything.
0: Yeah. It seems like and I tell you what, yeah, it's just that fully, engaged parent is just, is such a necessity and being fully in tune to, and then I think maybe to having an understanding that we're not going to know everything that they're exposed to, you know, like I think that every good intentioned parent wants to believe, oh, I know, like, you know, they, they go through the list of, I, they don't have a smartphone, you know, we've got filters on our computer. I, I've got them out of the public school system. So we're good, but that's not the way this stuff works. You know, like, yeah, those are great things. Those can be great things to do, you know, for, for your kids to have that type of intentionality. But knowing that they are going to expose to things that there's going to be conversations happening around them that are probably nothing like what we experienced when when we were their age um, is really encouraging. To, it, it it motivates me just to have that open dialogue as soon as possible, you know, and to have those conversations early and often. Thank you for speaking to that. In regards to you know your your most recent book, um, live your truth and, and other and other lies you you kind of uh, almost attack some of these feel good one-liners that have become such a you know i guess like building block on both secular and Christi- and christian culture and in a lot of ways it's almost like these these i think you even refer to them as pithy sayings and that's really what they are these pithy sayings that it's like hey man what's what's the harm in these you know they they're motivating and uh, you know i've made the joke sometimes on how depending on you know what what pastor or Christian teaching I'm, I'm listening to, I'm thinking like, yeah, this is very much Tony Robbins esque with some, with some Bible verses to back it up. Or even, you know, to guys like, you know, Zig Ziglar, or John Maxwell, or Tony Robbins, they, they, will, they will use scripture as well, you know, and some of those guys may be Christians, but then that's kind of crept in to sermons in general and to Bible teaching to this feel good. Hey, this is helpful for today. And in, in your book, you kind of, break some of those down be like, you know what, these actually are not that helpful. So can you kind of talk us through what led to you deciding to write that book and kind of, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, attack some of those things that make us feel so good?
1: Yeah, so... That this was interesting because I had no idea what I was going to write my second book about, mm-hmm. and I just kind of wanted a break because writing that first book was kind of a beast. There's just a lot of emotion in it. You know, my first book, Another Gospel, is basically my story of walking through doubt and coming out, and asking questions along the way as they interact with progressive Christianity that challenged my faith. And I dealt with progressive Christianity more on a just the theology of it. I uh, it was a, more of a memoir, lots of story, but it was like the theology that undergirds progressive Christianity. But then I realized like in the meantime, there's all these pop level influencers. And I think every movement has this, there's like the intellectuals and then there's the pop level influencers. (laughs) And what I hadn't really dealt with in another gospel was these pop level influencers, the ones with 80, you know, um, up to a million followers on, on one platform Mm and uh, just millions of followers combined. And it's like, they're not going deep into the theology, but they're, they're using these sayings that are sort of built, upon that progressive theology. So things like you're perfect just as you you are. Well, that's like a denial of the idea that human beings are sinners. And it just, but it sounds good. I mean, that's like the thing you want to say to somebody if they've been told lies about themselves, if people have said, hey, you're no good, you're never going to amount to anything. You want to say you're enough. You're perfect just as you are, right? And I get it. And I sympathize with that. But we have to realize that really what we're doing is is denying the correct diagnosis for that person. Mm -hmm. And then we can't give them a cure if we can't diagnose the sin problem correctly. Yes. Sure. So um, I just noticed this was like coming out of all these pop level influencers, but also that there was this cross section of culture as well. So you have, uh, I would say, probably the three influencers I... Deal with the most in Live Your Truth and Other Lies are Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Hollis, and Glennon Doyle, who all started out as Christian right, right. bloggers. Then they ended up writing books and then kind of became this these progressive Christian icons, but also just radically popular in culture. Mm-hmm. All of them have had best selling New York Times bestseller books in the secular culture, too. So there's something like going on where these messages are crossing over. And so I wanted to address those. And I had been giving a talk in at women's conferences for years called Pretty Little Lies. And so the the book sort of took some of those lies I was talking about and expanded them. And I had a lot of fun writing it, though, because there's so many stories and I love telling stories. And so I kind of show how some of these lies fail just in a story sense. But then we kind of dig in scripture a little bit and say, look, this is what the Bible says. And this is a better story for
0: you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I guess my question would be because each one of those uh, ladies that you mentioned, you know, have encouraged moms or, you know, men and women alike, and they they feel like there are these practical tidbits that we can what they like i said when you wake up tomorrow it help it helps you and so it's like who's and and a lot of times even christians will say well you know what maybe the the foundation or the theological backing's not that deep or helpful but the practical application is, is good. You know, it's, it's helping people be a better mom or a better entrepreneur or whatever, whatever the thing is that they're trying to pursue and pursue growth. in. uh, and so is there a counter to that, that then you say, no, listen, these actually, there's a dark side of this. It actually isn't that helpful. Like it's helpful maybe for tomorrow, but the end thereof is death. But then even in a practical way, there is, because I think a lot of Christians do want the practical help and the Bible is practical and the Christian life is a practical life. Have you found when doing this, you're like, you know what, there's actually a better version of this than what this pithy saying that lacks truth offers?
1: Yeah, definitely. So let's just take the phrase, you are enough. Mm -hmm. It's very ambiguous. It's a bit vague. If you filter it through a biblical worldview, and the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that everybody has been made in the image of God, I can get where people are getting there. But we have to think about what culture means when they're using this phrase, really what culture is telling us, that there's nothing outside of ourselves that we need to be made complete or to be made whole. And of course, this would assume that we're not Sinners deep inside, that if we just do some introspection, some good self care, what we find down there, according to culture, is going to be enough. It's going to be something that's good. And so, if that's your viewpoint, you can see why the Christian coming along and saying, Hey, wait, you're a sinner, that could sound like, ah, that's so toxic. That's so negative. Why would you tell me that about myself? But I, I use an analogy with that that I think is helpful. So, imagine that you walk into a room and you see a a person lying unconscious on the floor and someone else is beating on their chest and causing bruising, I think we would all agree like, yeah, that's toxic, that's abusive actually. Unless the person on the floor has just had a heart attack and the person pounding on their chest is administering CPR. And so in this case, the correct diagnosis is actually life-giving. This is something that is going to save a life or at least attempt to save a life. But truth is what matters. That's what makes the difference is the truth of what's going on. And so when Christians say we are sinners, that is not A control tactic or a fear tactic to make people come under, you know, to protect the institution. It's actually a correct diagnosis of what's of the human condition, and so I think the the better alternative is to realize that Jesus is enough. Now this should be very freeing to us as Christians, Mm -hmm. because Jesus is better than we'll be anyway. I mean, I could do my best to be the most morally perfect person who's ever lived, and I'm still going to fall radically short of the moral perfection of Jesus. But of course, we know scripturally that when we're in Christ, his righteousness, that moral perfection he accomplished gets imputed to us. Mm -hmm. So it's like it covers us like a garment. So when the father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness Jesus accomplished. So I say it this way, I'm not, you're not enough, but Jesus is enough. And when you're in him, his enoughness covers you so that when God looks at you, he sees the enoughness of Jesus. And that's such a more freeing message. I mean, not only is it true. But it's a more freeing message, because then you're the obligation for you to fix all of your own problems isn't on you. Yes. I mean, what a burden to put on people to say, you have all the tools you need inside yourself to fix yourself. And you and you know, that's not true. I mean, Ali Bestucki wrote a great book called You're Not Enough, and That's Okay. Mm. And in that book, she said, the self can't both be the problem and the solution, right? We need a solution outside of ourselves. And so you're actually giving somebody the correct cure. Whereas I think when people even from a well-intentioned, place, say you are enough, essentially what you're doing is you're not diagnosing the actual sickness and you're just making somebody comfortable in their sickness and not really giving them the life-saving help they need.
0: Well, that's so profound and helpful because like you said, when you follow the thought all the way through, it's so much more empowering and liberating and freeing. And of course, you know, we love that uh, Christ's death and his righteousness and his, you know, everything that he's done saves us from the wrath of God and like the amen, praise the Lord for that. But then there's this also in that, that we're not bound by our own sin anymore by ourselves. There's this element of being freed from, you know, the old man is dead and now we're alive in Christ and we get to walk in that new reality, uh, that he's, Brought to us in Christ, and so there is a very practical element to that. You know, we're we're dead to sin and we're alive in Christ, and when that shows itself forth every single day, every single moment of every day. It when you you know talk talk about this, I can't help but but wonder. Like in the pursuit of finding those like biblical footings, or maybe you might even call them intellectual footings for your faith, I think the warning that I've been told and maybe something that we've even seen is that haughtiness that comes from from intellectualism, right? That's such a turnoff and that might be leading people to say, Man, I just I just want the simple Jesus and I just want to pray and, you know, take those practical applications from the Bible and love people. And, you know, there's terms, you know, there's the term, you know, the caged Calvinist that everybody kind of like pictures. It's like, man, they've got all this knowledge and this this theology when it comes to soteriology. And they're, and they're telling everybody about it to a point where it's like not that helpful, you know, it's detrimental. And I feel like that can be applied to various levels of, you know, various areas of growing intellectualism. Did you experience that? Do you see that being a true fear or do you feel like that's kind of like, you know, a straw man that people use sometimes to be like, I, you know, I, you could, we could even be apathetic or lazy and not want to pursue the, the, uh, the knowledge. Do you see that? Do you think that that's a legitimate concern? And and if so, how do you kind of combat that?
1: I mean, I would say that it can be a legitimate concern in some contexts. Mm-hmm. I've certainly come across people that have so intellectualized everything that it's almost a cover for not having to live in, you know, daily obedience and their mm-hmm. the prayer life is not present. Welcome. I don't think that's common. I found personally that the more, oh goodness gracious, the more I learn, the more humbling it is, mm-hmm. because the more you realize how much you don't know and how much you're never going to know. Yes, sir. And so I have actually personally found it incredibly humbling. I'm reminded every day of how deficient my knowledge is, even if I were to study every day, all day. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm taking a philosophy class right now at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and it is humbling. Mm-hmm. I'm understanding about 30 <laughs> percent of the material. And I'm doing my best. I'm hanging on by my fingernails. Um, but I have actually found it very, very humbling because uh, for everything you learn, you realize there's this, the thing's 10 layers deep. Mm-hmm. And I could spend the rest of my life just digging this w- down into this one hole and still not be an expert on it. So uh, personally, I've found it to be humbling. I I think it depends on the person. But I will address this whole knowledge puffs up idea because I, I do encounter that a lot. There are a lot of Christians who say, I just want Jesus. I don't want all the intellectual stuff. Um, I would just encourage anybody who might be feeling that way to, to think that all the way through, because when you say, I just want Jesus, well, who is Jesus? Because you have to actually know some things about Jesus to be able to know who you're talking about. And in a time and in a culture where there Jesus is being portrayed in so many different ways, I mean, you have social justice, Jesus, you have rainbow flag waving jesus you have political jesus you have so many different versions of jesus um the only way you can know the real one is to know him is to read the gospels get to know who jesus is read revelation don't forget the jesus of revelation people tend to do that um but have your uh, we have to we can't just have this vague concept of jesus and not be deeply engaging with the word of god to know who god is and by the way Jesus is God. So Jesus, there are you know all the letters in the Bible are red letters. Yes, yes. Jesus is the author of Old Testament and New Testament. So it's not just the red letters and just the gospels where you get to know Jesus. It's yes, the sir. entire word of God. And so um I think that, you know, I've heard people say, I don't I just want to love Jesus. I don't want to do theology. Well, you've just done theology yes. by saying, I want to love Jesus. So you got to think through what you mean when you say that. So you can't escape it. Yes. yes. Um, but I would just urge everybody to take that humble approach of realizing my goodness. I mean, there's so much I don't know. And the more you learn, the more, you know, you don't, how much you don't know.
0: Wow. That is such a great way to explain that. Cause I think of, you know, I mean, just the, the word theology, you know, like that, that study of God and a popular, you know, saying, I think in my generations was, you know, well, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I just want this relationship with God. And, And of course I am grateful for the right relationship I have with God and, and that I can walk in, you know, friendship with him. And, but, but there also are some knowledge things, like there are some factual things that really enhance my relationship with God. You know, like just with any earthly relationship, I can't say, well, hey, no, this marriage, it's, a, it's, it's not a covenant, it's a relationship. So that gives me license to not know anything about you. That's just not going to result in a very good relationship, and it's actually not healthy in any way. And you can carry that same logic into even use, like you said, you're using your own terms. You know, I just want a relationship or I just want Jesus. It's like, okay, well, let's use that then as the parameters. And then let's go deeper with that. What do you need in order to have a relationship? So, you know, you mentioned a couple things about, um, well, well, I guess, you know, Jen Hat- Hatmaker, um, Rachel Hollis, and in this I think this is this has been something that's been interesting for me and my wife is there's been this rise of you know individuality when it comes to personality tests you know there's a bunch of personality tests out there there's and I'm not I'm not going to push you on this spot and say which one's right and which one's wrong you know but but I I do think a general takeaway of it is this pursuit of understanding ourselves. you know, what, what, what Enneagram are you or what's your, you know, you, you, what's your strengths finder or what's your Colby. And, and these can be help, helpful tools, I'm sure in finding out different strengths and propensities, but is there a way to step back and be like, you know what, like regardless of what, and then another thing people do too, is it's like this, this infatuation with our past to understand who we are. You know, say like, okay, I, I realize I've been dwelling a lot on my childhood and my parents did this. And, and, and I certainly do not want to be insensitive to people that have experienced trauma, you know, and have had hard childhoods. But do you think there can be something unhealthy in being so infatuated with these uh, personality tests or an over examining of maybe our childhood or our history and trying to understand who we are, our deepest desires, what our motivators are that actually hinders us from walking in the way that Christ created us to walk?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I want to answer that. But I do want to comment about three minutes ago, you might have heard something on the mic. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I just want to be clear to everyone. They're, they're actually doing blasting out here because wow. they're wow. building some um, condominiums. I just didn't want anybody to think I had too many beans for lunch. And that was and Well, I'm glad well, I'm you clarified.
0: Was, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was the blasting just, just for clarity, Um, but yes, (laughs) but just for, um, the, so the personality test. Yeah. I do think there's a danger because, um, one of the, we are just enamored with ourselves, right? Naturally. We just love to talk about ourselves. We love We always want to give our own opinions and we love to just analyze ourselves. And so this, I think it can lead into a type of idolatry, I think, depending on the test. You use some tests, I think, are way more dangerous than others, especially if you consider how they first came to be and the scientific validity of them. Uh, But one of the dangers I do see is people becoming so... Uh, ensconced in their personality number or type or whatever it might be, that they begin to really see the world through that lens. And then what might end up happening inadvertently is they begin to behave in a way that aligns with maybe some, gen- maybe what seemed to be really genuine insights about themselves. And then they sort of, you know, mold themselves into that uh, inadvertently. And I've also seen a danger of Christians. I know people who have said to me, you know, I use this test to help diagnose my sin mm-hmm. and that's the Holy Spirit's job. The personality test is not a sin diagnoser, mm. right? It's again, like you said, it might show you maybe some propensities in your particular type of personality, but um, it's not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And then the third concern I might have is that um, I've seen scenarios in which there'll be a small group get together to do a Bible study, but they just end up talking about their Enneagram number the whole time. Yeah. Um, well, I know we weren't going to mention specific tests, yeah. but we know what we're talking about. I already so. said that <laughs> one. So yeah. You did, yeah. that's right. Yeah. You said it. Um, but yeah, Yeah. And then and then if there's anybody who sort of is just like, yeah, I'm not really into it. Oh, well, that means you're at this number. And then that gets, you know. And so it it can really make us kind of obsessed with ourselves in a very unhealthy and spiritually unhealthy way. Mm -hmm. Our focus should be on Christ. And so um, I do have actually have a podcast on the Enneagram that I have had so much feedback from where people have said, like, this really opened my eyes to what's going on with the Enneagram. So I would just recommend people go back. I think it's something like, is the Enneagram a Trojan horse? We'll Um, link that below. Yeah, it's been a really effective, like a lot of my podcasts, people say, oh, I agree with you, or I don't agree with you. This one in particular, I had a lot of people say this really changed my mind. Mm -hmm. So check that out. If that's a question, maybe somebody has that's watching.
0: Great. Yeah, we'll we'll be sure to link that and any of the books or anything you reference, we'll try to link those below as well. So people can find that. I I do think something too, along those lines is, you know, uh, character and repentance of sin, it like can be totally different things. Like we are, you know, we, we get so caught up with ourself and our propensities. And it's like, man, that's the very person Christ came and put to death when he was put to death on the cross. And so this life that we now live, we should be looking at as the new creation in Christ Jesus. And if he's the Lord of our life, we get to, he gets to say how we behave. He gets to say, you know, how we interact in various situations when our, you know, when, our, when, our, when we get annoyed with various things. It's not what our personality number says we behave. It's how Christ says we should behave in those situations. Okay, you know, in wrapping up, Alisa, like can you kind of like tell us where you're currently at? You said you're you're writing this book right now or you're you turn in a manuscript um about deconstruction, so it sounds like your head's there a lot. But you know, stuff stuff moves fast. And I feel like you're you're a great voice in in um in regards to current affairs, you know, current maybe um thoughts that are rampant in the church. They could be dangerous. They could be helpful. And like right now, you know, that this is what we, what is it? February something, you know, here in 2023, are there things that are popping up that even last year you're like, well, boy, I didn't see that being a thing. Or can you speak to anything like that?
1: Well, I can tell you what I'm right in the middle of right now. I don't know when this is going to air, but Um, I'm really right in the middle of this, all the conversation about the, what's happening at Asbury university with what people are calling revival. Um, I, I just recorded yesterday, a conversation on Justin Brierley's unbelievable, where I was on with the president of Asbury and Gavin Ortland. And, um, you know, I was. I was raising some concerns about it, and I do have concerns about it. I don't want to throw a wet blanket on something God is doing. If God is convicting the hearts of students to respond to him in repentance and faithfulness and obedience, um, praise God. I'm sure that's happening. But I've also kind of urged some caution because this is taking a little bit of a different flavor than other revivals. Other revivals have tended to be focused on uh, conversion, unbelievers, unchurched people coming to Christ and maybe a, a birth of numbers or in a particular location, this is more marked by an extended worship service, it seems to be. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I yeah, I've, I've done a couple of pieces of content on that if people want to check that out. Just, just asking, you know, just a little bit of caution, like, hey, let's let's be excited if God is moving and working in the lives of students, but let's also ask the difficult questions about, you know, especially today when there's so much confusion mm-hmm. about sin, mm-hmm. especially among that age group, and there's the cultural zeitgeists of critical theory and social justice ideology and LGBTQ ideology. I, I mean, I mean, I would expect to see if the if the Holy Spirit has really descended on this place in a powerful way, I would expect to see a lot of repentance in those areas. And so just asking those questions, is that what we're seeing? And I'm praying that it is and and we're, you know, I'm I'm trying to be hopefully cautious about it. But um, it's really the thing more than anything about this whole conversation is how divisive it's been. Mm-hmm. People have really, it's almost like the pandemic and the race conversations of 2020 it's like everybody's being forced to choose a side and i think i'm just saying we don't have to do that Mm -hmm. it's okay to to just wait and see it's okay to ask good questions it's okay to compare it with what scripture says and um And just remain cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And again, I don't know how relevant that's even going to be, you know, when, by the time this episode's airing because of how fast information moves and stuff. But even in, even in regards to that, um, you know, you talked about that being forced to choose a side and, uh, I'm, this is just a question coming directly from me, you know, like I, I want I want to stay, hold the line when it comes to non-negotiables, which, you know, again, how do you define those? And for, you know, primary issues, and the secondary, then tertiary. And all of those are important. You know, I think a lot of times people will be like, oh, it's a secondary issue, but that doesn't then deem it worthless, you know, or like, well, then it doesn't matter if there's a true, you know, a, a back backing to it. But how have you, especially over the last couple of years, when it is such a di- uh, um, divisive culture and di- diverse di- um I'm having a hard time saying that word. Divisive climate. Yeah, thank you. Climate. You know, there's on one hand like this almost kind of uninspiring pursuit of ecumenical unity that is just not, like I said, just not very inspiring. We're kind of like this is just kind of nauseating. And then on the other hand, you might have people that are more on a provocateur standpoint, and you know, people that are heresy hunters. Maybe would be a term for them. And I don't see you really in either one of those camps, and I, I, I appreciate that about you, but what is like a mindset we can take into having good discernment of saying, hey, this is not Christian. You know, this is not, you might call it Orthodox Christianity or historical Christianity, and how do you kind of rank the various levels of danger. Cause you know, if it's not truth, it's not truth. And so you don't want to like, just turn your back to it, but it does seem like there are various levels and it kind of speaks to this Asbury thing. So it's just kind of like, well, boy, you know, like how do you start categorizing these things?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And I appreciate that you wouldn't lump me in either camp. Cause I really try to avoid that. I do see just the vicious, um, you know, maybe heresy hunting is the term where people are just, they can't wait for somebody to say the wrong thing on a podcast or misspeak in a certain way, or just find the one little thing that proves the whole thing wrong, um, and I don't like that. I don't. I don't like the spirit behind that. And then on the other side of things, you're right. You have this sort of like unity at all costs. We shouldn't ever disagree with each other. If you say you believe in Jesus, then it's just one big happy party. Yeah. But like I said earlier, it's a lot of different Jesus's out there. So we do have to ask these questions. I think the way that I approach this as best that I can is that if I have to disagree with some. I want to make sure I'm also praying for them at the same time and to distinguish between in-house debates and what would actually put somebody out of the faith. So when I'm talking about progressive Christianity, and I'm not saying everyone who identifies themselves as a progressive Christian would agree with what I'm about to say, but the leaders, the thought leaders of the movement, they're denying that we're sinners. They're denying that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice. They're denying that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. They're denying God's wrath. They're denying the existence of hell. That's really... Really not an in-house debate anymore. That's when we mark and avoid, as the scripture says. Now, in the in-house, I, I think we need to have, to avoid council culture, we need to have more of a family mindset. So if there's a brother in Christ that I'm going to disagree with who's older than me, I'm going to think, how would, I, how would I approach this if it was my dad? If it's somebody my age, how would I approach this if this was my sister hmm, hmm. and I disagreed with her and really had an issue with something she was saying? Or what about a younger person? How would I approach my own child wow. if they were sort of getting off into something? And so I try to have those categories in my mind. And also in the in-house debates, I try to give somebody as long of a rope as I possibly can, rather than trying to find the one thing that's the smoking gun. I just I, I think a wait and see approach is good. And it's like, I mean, this person might have 20 years of a track record of faithfulness to the gospel that starts saying some weird things. I'm going to really give that person a long rope. I'm not going to avoid talking about it. But I think just approaching it as a family issue is really important. And I love so much that you said secondary issues are not unimportant. That is such a key thing to understand, because people might think like I would I would see something like women in ministry as a secondary issue in that somebody's not going to go to hell if they have the wrong view on that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a very, very important issue mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. talk about. I think that flowing out of that is where we're seeing all the gender confusion, mm-hmm. gender role confusion in our culture. I think it flowers out of us having bad theology on that topic. So I'm going to talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to disagree with people, but I'm not going to say, you know, you're a heretic, you're going to hell if you have the wrong view on that. So I think knowing what our categories are and how to approach and talk about those categories are very important. But um, yeah, let's not be cancel culture. Let's let's not model that. But let's also not model unity at all costs, because Jesus prayed for unity, but it's unity around the real Jesus and the one true faith. So anything that's preaching a different gospel or a different Jesus, like we have to be really strong and not unify with that.
0: Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's crazy. I love that attitude of, you know, how would you talk to your father, you know, about this or, or somebody that's, you know, close in your, in your family, taking it like a family conversation. Because I, when I think of that, you know, everybody has their echo chamber. I tell you what, you know, like YouTube and Google, they're good at knowing what you kind of like, and then just feeding you all that stuff, you know? So you're like, man, I am so smart and everybody else is really, really dumb because everybody's agreeing with me here. And so I'll be having that kind of, echo chamber conversations, whether it's with people at my church or people in my community. And you can get so worked up and be talking about, you know, ideas that are within the faith and being like, Man, these morons think this and how could you think that? And then I step away. It's like, oh yeah. My dad actually holds some of those stances, and I love talking to my dad about those. And we go and we talk about them in a very gracious way. But when you like, you know, dehumanize the people that think of those, and my dad's an amazing Christian man, you know, and and yet I would, when somebody else that I don't know, or maybe an online presenter of these, you know, truths, or or of these ideas, I should say, um, says them, um, I'm thinking like, what a moron. But of course, I wouldn't talk to my dad that way, you know. In fact, we've got a very, a very peaceful, friendly conversation about about whatever the thing is, eschatology, soteriology, you know, gent- whatever the thing is, you can have a really, in- a really, you know, cordial in-house conversation that's actually edifying and helpful. So I like that approach of thinking how you would talk to somebody in your family. Alisa, thank you so much. Can you just kind of let us know where we can find you? I'll, I'll link your podcast. I'll link your website. Is there anything else our listeners should, should know about? Any fun upcoming projects or events you're going to be at? What's, what's happening in your upcoming future?
1: Yeah, I've I've founded a conference called uh the Unshaken Conference with my friend Natasha Crane and Frank Turk is joining us to speak. And we're uh, doing our next date in California. So if you have any Southern California listeners, May 6th at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, you can go to unshakenconference.com to register for that. We also just launched the Unshaken Faith Podcast. It's just a short 15-minute per week bite-sized podcast, just giving Christians advice on how to live out their faith in an increasingly chaotic culture. So we deal with all the kind of hot butt- and topics on there and it's just real short bite-sized pieces. So that's the Unshaken Faith podcast.
0: Oh, I love it. It's really exciting. Yeah. I know we've got some listeners down in Southern California, so we'll be sure to share all that info down below. Again, Elisa, thank you so much for taking your time. Blessings to you and thank you for everything that you do. Please, please keep up the good work.
1: Thanks so much. I loved this conversation and thanks so much for having me on. Yes. Yes.